11.02 p.m. Saturday, November 28, 1942. A fifth alarm is sent by Boston Fire Department officers on scene at the Coconut Grove nightclub. Less than an hour after the fire started in the downstairs Melody Lounge, hundreds are already dead or dying. Firefighters discover that many of the dead are piled up inside the club's main entrance. That revolving door and many others that were locked shut sealed the fate of 492 souls. The carnage that came out of the so-called paradise changed the way that we enter and more importantly, exit today. I'm Jeff Moss. I'm Tyler J. Thomas. And I'm Tim Coleman. Together, we will explore and discuss these events from the perspective of over 30 years of combined locksmith and door hardware experience. This is The Three Tumblers. Coconut Grove Fire, Part 3, Phoenix of Paradise. Flames are engulfing the wall coverings, ceiling drapes, fake palm trees, and everything else designed to give the grove a tropical paradise feel. Smoke is billowing out, and firefighters are trying to get in to rescue those that still have a chance. U.S. servicemen, mostly from the Navy and Coast Guard, along with people just passing by, all jump in to help with the rescue efforts. 21-year-old Clifford Johnson of the United States Coast Guard had been on a date inside the Coconut Grove when it caught fire. Although he was able to make it out, his date wasn't with him. Fearing the worst, he ran back inside after her. Many others were also dragging people to safety and trying to get them to the hospitals. Piedmont Street was very narrow at only 21 feet from curb to curb. For comparison, modern city streets are typically 50 feet wide today. The club's parking area and Piedmont Street packed with cars and what fire trucks could get near there was no room for ambulances or other vehicles to get close to transport victims to the hospital. That didn't stop members of the Navy, though. They arrived from the nearby yard after receiving a request for help from the Boston police at 10.45 p.m. The Marine barracks sent three trucks with five men each, and the Navy Yard's medical crew sent six station wagons with drivers and corpsmen. Ambulances, Taxi cabs, delivery trucks, and military vehicles were all pressed into service transporting victims from the scene to the nearby hospitals. Massachusetts General Hospital and Boston City Hospital both received the majority of casualties. At one point, Boston City was receiving a new patient every 11 seconds. Fortunately, the hospitals were well prepared because only a week earlier, there had been a citywide drill simulating an attack from the Luftwaffe. There were stockpiles of supplies, medications, and even blood. At 11.30 p.m., the fire at the Grove is officially extinguished, but the investigation is just beginning. The mass casualty incidents, even today, are something that can be overwhelming to even the best prepared hospitals. You have EMS workers who go out, respond to the scene, transport to the hospital. The hospital only has so many beds 
and can only take in so many people at a time. Boston City Hospital was receiving one new patient every 11 seconds. Imagine if you're working in your shop and you're receiving one new customer every 11 seconds and you have to deal with that customer. Those aren't matters of life and death. This was. They were just completely inundated, but they handled it really, really well, probably due to all the preparations as part of the war effort. Having that drill just a week earlier, having all the medical supplies stockpiled. And also, we got to give it to the armed services because it wasn't just the Navy and Coast Guard, but there were the Marines, the Army, there were off-duty police officers and off-duty firefighters who all saw the smoke, heard the calls for help, and went to the scene. Yeah, and I think this is a really good um, use and example of mutual aid in an early form. I know today here, the you know all the hospitals share data with the county uh, if they're on override or if they're you know, closed for patients for any reason, if they need to be diverted out of facilities. So you know, information sharing was a lot different back then, but I think that's a pretty good response for the time. We're in the middle of wartime, so luckily there were a lot of people in the area to come help. And you know, that, I don't know that that's done as much today if it's just local and regional law enforcement. You know, the National Guard exists for things like that. So I think that's a good sharing of resources and proves that training works. And keep in mind, too, that a lot of these people that are coming in are suffering from hypoxia, which can be confused with a lot of different other things that they would have naturally been exhibiting or experiencing. For example, rapid heart rate, likely from the adrenaline rush that the situation caused. They're going to be coughing, wheezing, having trouble breathing, but they've just inhaled God knows what. And then on top of that, it was in the low 30s that night. And who knows how long some of those people had been waiting outside. So when they get to the hospital, they might have noticeable confusion, which is a symptom shared between hypothermia and hypoxia. So in a roundabout way, what I'm trying to say is that the hospital staff had their work cut out for them. While the official report by the City of Boston Fire Department was released on November 19, 1943, days shy of the one-year anniversary, the investigation started just minutes after the fire was extinguished. Boston Police, Fire Department, State Fire Marshal's Office, and United States Navy officials all descended on the scene. Mayor Maurice Tobin, a good friend of club owner Barney Wolanski also arrived at the Grove. Investigators soon learn about 16-year-old Stanley Tomaszewski's lighting a match to screw the light bulb back in place on a fake palm tree in the Melody Lounge. The Polish high school student and football player who worked 18 hours a week for 13 cents an hour plus tips to take care of his mom and dad who were in poor health was quickly named by the public as the cause of the tragedy. Even the Boston Herald's headline read, Busboy Fixing Light with Match Sets Fire. Fortunately for Stanley, his teacher came out in support and described the honor student as, quote, one of the swellest kids. The investigators have cooler heads than the public, 
and don't give a knee-jerk reaction. Instead, they focus on what else they find inside the grove. For starters, the bottom third of the walls were covered in fake leather. This leatherette was made using pyroxylin, or nitrocellulose. First developed in the 1860s as an alternative to gunpowder, it was later found that the dinitrate form of the chemical can be used in lacquers for furniture. A similar process was used to finish fabrics and make them have an appearance and texture similar to leather, but at only a fraction of the cost. Although leatherette is still made today, there are many more safeguards in place to make it flame resistant than there were in the 1930s, seeing as how nitrocellulose has a flash point of 39 degrees Fahrenheit. Rattan and bamboo wall coverings and furniture also added to the fuel. Methyl chloride, the refrigerant used in place of Freon, was also thought to be a factor to fueling the fire due to the color of the flames described by survivors. When Boston Fire Commissioner William Arthur Riley submitted his official report on the Grove Fire to the State Fire Marshal, he cited all of these as being fuel sources, along with flammable gases of incomplete combustion, like carbon monoxide. However, what he couldn't give the Fire Marshal was an official cause of ignition. So, fun fact, Nitrocellulose lacquer was one of the original paints for cars. And uh, somebody that I went to high school with, his family's business uh, was auto body supplies and paint. And when they started in the 30s, that's what they painted cars with. Uh, I did not know that it was also used in uh, leatherette couches and, and uh, furnishings. So that's interesting. And if you've ever seen Inglorious Bastards, you'll know that nitrocellulose was also used uh, for film, the film strips that they would wind up and project. That's why you couldn't carry them, uh, according to the movie, on trains, subways, places like that, because it's incredibly flammable. Right. Gun cotton takes very little to set it off. There have been several documentaries, science shows on TV that have explored uh, the recreation of gun cotton. It takes just very little to ignite it, to set it off. Basically, uh, you have to hit it with a hammer and it explodes. Now, the gun cotton is made out of the trinitrate form of pyroxylin or nitrocellulose. The leatherette is made from dinitrate, which without going into too much more chemistry, uh, is different forms of the way that the oxygen and hydrogen bonds are made, making it volatile or non-volatile. Something else that I wanted to mention is the media's power. Uh, even back then, you know, we see it and hear about it all the time today. Back in 1942, the Boston Globe basically sentenced Stanley Tomaszewski to public ridicule. He was found guilty in the court of public opinion within hours of the fire. You know, the public's just haste to judge out of an already bad situation. Thankfully, the investigators kept a cool head and told everybody, said, hey, just wait a minute, we're investigating this. Don't rush to judgment on him. Cut 
Commissioner Riley's report documented that the 10,200-square-foot Coconut Grove building had a total of nine exits. The basement level had three, although two of these were stairs going back up to the first floor. The ground level had six exits, two on Piedmont Street, one onto Broadway, and four onto Shawmut Street. Of these exits, only two were practically usable by customers. With the maze-like layout of the grove and the wall coverings and decorations Barney Wolanski had installed, several of the doors leading from the main dance floor onto Shawmut Street were inaccessible. The door at the top of the stairs coming from the Melody Lounge that opened onto Piedmont Street actually had a properly installed exit device, or crash bar. But it was completely useless because Barney had a secondary lock installed on it to keep customers from skipping out on their tab. Had this door not had a deadlock installed, possibly hundreds of people would have lived. The main entryway to the club, its revolving door, was to blame for some 200 deaths. While some patrons were able to get out before the second fireball erupted, many were getting jammed up at the door simply because there were too many people trying to go through at one time. On November 18th, a lieutenant from the Boston Fire Department had inspected the grove and written up that there were no issues at all with the building's safety. Whether or not this lieutenant was a buddy of Wolanski has been lost to history. With the second fireball now literally setting people's hair on fire, human panic set in and the revolving door was completely useless. Piles of burned and suffocated bodies lay in heaps. So yeah, this this is the whole like mass panic, mass chaos that you think about. Um, just the failure of all the stuff that was done crappily, for lack of a better term, coming to a head. And, you know, we've talked about it before and called it like the perfect storm. This is all the all the bad stuff that maybe didn't cause any problems by itself, but when they're all together, you know, it's really, really, really bad. The secondary lock on the top of the stairs that opened out to Piedmont Street, I wish I could say I've never seen that, but I've seen a lot of that, namely deadbolts in addition to exit devices or crash bars. I've seen that actually on a since-closed nightclub uh, as well, and a few other places that kind of function just like this nightclub which reminds me just as a friendly reminder if you see this as we've said multiple times in the past call or email the local fire marshal that's their primary job function they they need to correct violations like this but they can't be everywhere at once so they rely on public feedback believe it or not actually welcome it so if you see something say something this wasn't a padlock and chain or padlock and hasp type secondary lock so I think it was probably something more akin to a double-sided deadbolt, a double-cylinder deadbolt, I should say. And it was installed in the door. They didn't have aluminum and glass storefront doors back then. Obviously, aluminum being in short supply for the war effort needed to build planes out of aluminum more than you needed to build a door for your business. And if your door for your business was aluminum, you donated that as part of the war effort. Regardless, 
I think that it was probably a, a steel door or some sort of metal door that had the properly installed exit device on it also had a double cylinder deadbolt or equivalent of the time period on the door that's what kept people from being able to escape and hundreds of people could have made it out that way coming up from the melody lounge and also coming in from the main foyer area which of course was spilled out from the main dance floor dining area and the caricature bar also at this point with the second fireball that comes through, it literally came down probably halfway between the ceiling and the floor. So anybody standing through there, the heat was just so intense that it literally set people's hair on fire. They found people both living and deceased whose heads were singed uh, from those flames and people who ran out who were lucky enough to run out just in front of it, came out with their heads on fire. The fire at the Grove was a wake-up call to America. While defending itself from outside attacks during the war, it realized that many buildings could effectively kill citizens all by themselves without the help of Nazis. Changes were called for and made not just in Boston, but throughout the country. Revolving doors were outlawed in the U.S. for a short period of time. When they were allowed again, they were required to not only have collapsible leaves, but also have outward swinging exit doors flanking both sides. Codes were changed to require doors along the path of egress to always swing outwards, exit doors to remain unlocked from the inside at all times, and clearly illuminated signs indicating the exit doors to be visible even in the darkest rooms and heaviest smoke. Business owners also could not cover up exit doors, nor could they block them by any means. Doing so meant facing criminal charges. All exit doors were also required to have exit devices installed and no other kinds of locks on them, preventing people from being trapped inside an inferno like the Grove. The National Fire Protection Association, which was the authority on building codes at the time, began changing the language of its life safety code so that it could be used as actual legal reference. This gave more teeth to authorities enforcing building safety. So the changes in the code language at this time go from adopting non-legal terminology that when viewed in the eyes of the court could be considered more of professional suggestion than actual legal terminology. After the Grove, the NFPA changed its life safety code to reflect language that could be used within actual legal terminology. It goes from a suggestion to legal requirement. That's what gives it the teeth. And I'm sure somebody who's a lawyer could give a lot better explanation of that. But basically, we have real change that can be enforced now that is on paper, in writing, in black and white. I just say, if you look in a code book, it's shall be done 
shall be installed, shall be, not please do it if you want. These are um, not optional. Yeah, anytime the word shall is used in any type of legal document or legislation or statute or code, shall means you must. May is a possibility. So when referencing, I guess my original point was if the local codes and ordinances referenced back to the NFPA document at the time, that NFPA document would not read shall. It would read may or should. And once they're adopted by any jurisdiction, whether it's a county, state, city, whatever it may be, it does become law because now it's codified. So the NFPA did all the hard work for a lot of governing bodies across the country because they put it in a legal verbiage and then state and local governments just had to come along, uh, maybe wanted to tweak one or two things, what they call addendums. We've got a whole document in Georgia, addendums to the IBC and FPA. They make little changes to it, but not much. You know, they want to change maybe measurements or write entire paragraphs, rewrite entire paragraphs to remove the shalls or include mays or shoulds or whatever it may be. But once they're adopted, they, they're legally binding at that point. And we've talked a lot about the NFPA and IBC in previous episodes, namely their efforts to make life safety better. But another name I don't think we've mentioned up until this point is Underwriters Laboratories. I think maybe we did in season one for high security, but that was it. Just, you know, kind of a name drop. Initially, and certainly around this time, they focused on three big things. Uh, Number one, devices meant to stop fires, like extinguishers. Number two, devices meant to resist fires, like fire doors. And number three, devices that frequently called on fire, which applies to basically everything we just heard about. The reason why we don't enter public or commercial spaces lined with combustible materials on virtually every square inch is because of groups like the Underwriters Laboratories and their testing on items and item improvements. There are so many hidden wills in our society that most people will never know about, but thankfully they're there and they're always trying to make things safer for us so that we're not going into the hellscape we just we just heard about. Also, one other thing I'd like to add about this is that the Von Duprin Hardware Company pioneered the free path of egress method of thinking years before. This is not just an oversight. It's not just a design flaw. This is a blatant disregard. On the night of the fire, there were well over a thousand people inside of a building rated for only about 600. They never consulted with hardware professionals in order to make the building safe through all the years of renovations, ownership changes. They just kept it the way that it was and kept adding on to their little maze that fortunately killed 492 people. Laws and codes about doors and hardware weren't the only things to have changed because of the Grove. Handling of mass casualty incidents and treatment of burn victims also advanced. Triage systems were created to better prioritize victims arriving at the hospital. Doctors Charles Lund and Newton Browder 
at Boston City Hospital developed a chart to quickly estimate the percentage of body area a person has burns to. That chart is in every emergency department and ambulance in the country today. Thirteen of the survivors were among the first humans to be treated with penicillin. Burn victims were treated in sterile wards. Before these advances, most burn victims died from infection. Clifford Johnson, the 21-year-old Coast Guardsman who went back into the grove a total of four times looking for his date and pulling others to safety, received this top-of-the-line treatment at Boston City Hospital. While recovering from burns over 55% of his body, Cliff learned that the girl he had been with that night had escaped around the same time he had. Like all of the severe burn patients, Clifford had a team of nurses caring for him 24 hours a day throughout his recovery, including Marion Donovan. She tended to him after doctors performed some of the first pinpoint skin grafts. It was a procedure that paved the way for modern burn care. So yeah, I think, you know, like you said, nowadays it's different. I think most hospitals are probably run by, at least here, most of the hospitals are run by one of two agencies where they all receive the same training. All the firefighters know the, you know, which hospital to take people to. They're sharing of information, sharing of records. It's not like it was back in the day when they were all independent hospitals and sending people across the city, you know, to some foreign, for lack of a better term, foreign hospital. I feel like treatment would be a lot better now. You know, same with, you know, I was also going to say the same with, you know, communications at incidents with fire ground channels and, and tactical stuff and people having, you know, the incident command system, which didn't exist back then. You know, I've know people that are involved with amateur radio and things like that, where they take the incident commander uh, training and, you know, it's always done the same and it's practiced and it's done the way it's practiced. And when the stuff hits the fan, everybody knows their job. At least they had a a drill, you know, recently. Right. They had had the drill one week earlier. Uh, But also, just so that our listeners know, Massachusetts General and Boston City were not the only two hospitals. They received, uh, between the two of them, they received 83% of the victims from the fire. But there were other hospitals that received about 30 or so patients. Uh, That was Peter Bent Brigham Hospital, Beth Israel Hospital, Cambridge City Hospital, Kenmore Hospital, Faulkner Hospital, St. Elizabeth's, Malden, Massachusetts Memorial, Kearney, and St. Margaret's. Uh, So there were more than just those two hospitals that received patients from this. I don't know the sizes of those others. Obviously, Boston City and Massachusetts General were both uh, the largest at the time, and also... Barney Wolanski was at Massachusetts General Hospital in a private room recovering from a heart attack on the night of the fire. So he's in that same building where victims of his nightclub are coming into. So this is in or around the time of the first pulse oximeter uh, and right before their use became widespread. So I wonder if they had one of the devices like that on hand, because I imagine determining a fire survivor's oxygen saturation levels are very important. Uh, I know they had manual ventilation. All that had been 
used, invented, widespread for almost 100 years up to that point, probably longer if you want to be technical about it. But I had to imagine that when people are coming in, determining their oxygen saturation levels are, are very important. And if they had that capability at that time, I'm sure it would have been a, a necessary and valuable tool, but they did pretty well. You know, just one of those little things you'd, you'd like to know, you know, if it made things a little bit better for them or if they didn't have it and just performed admirably without it. Also, at the time, there wasn't an established triage system. Nowadays, you have a system for rapid triage, and then it can kind of filter out once you get into one of the four main categories, being green, yellow, red, or black. Green meaning that you're okay. Yellow is somebody that you want to treat soon, but not right away because they are stable for the moment. Red is critical, you need to treat them immediately. Black is deceased. Those are the triage colors under the incident command system that Jeff was just discussing. The fact that antibiotics were not used then. We take antibiotics for granted today, but back then, I mean, we're looking at 13 of the first human beings to ever receive penicillin as a result of this fire. And the thought process was that burns open up the body's interior to infection. And most patients died of infection uh, from serious burns at the time. So the treatment before this was basically applying a chemical to a person's burns that caused the body to create scabs over the burns. So imagine having nurses and doctors pouring fluid over your open burns trying to make scabs form. That was not conducive to healing, and most patients wound up dying from infection anyway. So now we have not only antibiotics, but we also have a sterile environment for treating burns, and we have the use of petroleum jelly-infused gauze, and we have doctors who are performing actual skin grafts. And they're doing not just general skin grafts, they're doing pinpoint skin grafts. So in the case of Clifford Johnson, they were taking tiny pieces of skin that were not burned, removing them, and then placing them where they could grow and help heal uh, his burns. And the lessons learned from this paved the way to modern burn treatment. Shortly after the fire, criminal indictments were issued for 10 people including a lieutenant from the Boston Fire Department, a building inspector, and several others. The only charges to stick, though, were Barney's. Years of playing fast and loose with the law finally caught up to him after doing things off the books for so long. On April 10, 1943, Barney Wolanski was convicted on 19 counts of manslaughter. The 19 victims were selected at random to represent all of those who died. The judge gave him 12 to 15 years in prison. But after just shy of four years in the slammer, Barney's pal, mayor, turned governor of Massachusetts, Maurice Tobin, quietly pardoned him and he was released from Norfolk prison. He told reporters, I wish I'd died with the others in the fire. Nine weeks after being released, Barney got his wish, dying from cancer. 
After spending nearly a year in Boston City Hospital, Clifford Johnson walked out on his own. Now healed and able to care for himself, he found he cared for his nurse, Marion, too. They got married and moved to Cliff's hometown of Sumner, Missouri, where he found good work driving fuel delivery trucks. On December 20th, 1956, the truck Cliff was driving went off the road and he was trapped inside as the fuel ignited. Having cheated death by fire once before, he unfortunately was not able to do so again. Stanley Tomaszewski had lived in a hotel room for months under police protection due to the intense negative media attention given to him. He eventually graduated high school and later Boston College. Stanley got married and had three children while working his lifelong career as a federal auditor. In 1972, he told a Boston Globe reporter, quote, I've suffered enough was spit on, called every name in the book, and threatened. It hasn't been easy. I don't have a sense of guilt, because it wasn't my fault. If I felt guilty, I wouldn't be talking to you. I never backed away. In 1994, Stanley Tomaszewski died at the age of 68. In 1944, following trials and investigations, the building at 17 Piedmont Street was torn down 28 years after it was first constructed. In 1993, the Bay Village Neighborhood Association dedicated a memorial plaque at the site of the club. The plaque was created and made by Anthony Peter Mara, or Tony to his friends. The 15-year-old kid that made sure everyone had plenty of water to drink and butter for their bread. The bronze plaque was entitled, Phoenix Out of the Ashes. Tony died on May 4, 2003, at age 76. Thirteen years later, his plaque was moved for development of new condominiums on the side of the grove. On November 26, 2023, a groundbreaking ceremony was held at Statler Park for a new, permanent memorial. Just weeks after the fire at the Grove, the licensing board passed a law stating that no business establishment in the city of Boston could call itself the Coconut Grove. To this day, no one has challenged that law. Executive producer is Tyler J. Thomas. Technical producer is Jeff Moss. Writer and editor is Tim Coleman. For source materials, see our website, 3tumblers.com. Get this episode and others wherever you get your podcasts.
This has been a Three Tumblers production. Copyright 2024. All rights reserved.